Go ahead and pick your speed up your number one now. Runway 27, clear to land green dot. Welcome to Oshkosh, guys. Hello and welcome to The Green Dot, EAA's podcast for anyone and everyone who loves aviation. The Green Dot is sponsored by GE Aviation. I'm Tom Sharpentier, Government Relations Director here at EAA. Across the table. I'm Chris Henry. I'm the EA Museum Programs Coordinator. And Chris, we have a guest today that uh, has a very special connection with probably uh, one of the most special aircraft uh, from the uh, World War II era. Uh, you want to introduce and bring him on? Absolutely. Uh, as I said last night, uh, as, as uh, a kid growing up, this is uh, a high honor to have you here because as, as a kid, uh, you were someone I really looked up to uh, and still do, uh, someone who's worked uh, tirelessly to preserve not just uh, one B-17, although it is focused on one, but you've done a lot for the B-17 community. Uh, and uh, that's Dr. Harry Friedman. Uh, sir, welcome to, to the Green Dot. We're happy to have you here. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. So, Dr. Friedman, how does a neurosurgeon from Memphis uh, get involved uh, with, um, with World War II aviation, B-17s, and then eventually the, the, the uh, most famous v- B-17 of them all? Well. Aviation came before medicine. (laughs) I grew up with it. Um, Six years old, I think I was, when I first saw the Memphis Bell movie, the Weiler movie, and maintained an interest in that and general, but particularly military aviation throughout the years. Uh, Once I got into medicine, it kind of paid for itself because every doctor needs a diversion. (laughs) <laughs> this was my diversion. <laughs> so well, Now, growing up in Memphis, I have to ask, do you remember the first time you actually saw the, the airplane in person? Yes, I do. That was, uh, it was sitting at the Tennessee Air National Guard. It was probably 1949 or 1950. My brother was in the Air National Guard at that time, took me out there and introduced me to the airplane at the movie I had just seen uh, just a couple of years before. So, um that was uh, how we got involved. Were, were you starstruck when you saw it? Do you remember? Probably wasn't. Um, I don't know what starstruck is. I just love seeing the airplane. Uh, even at that time, I didn't realize all about the airplane and what it had been through and um, even having seen the movie. Uh, so it took a while. But once as I got into it and started learning more about the crew and the people, yeah, it, it, it kind of grows on you. So could you briefly recap um, for those of us, those of um, our audience listening that don't know, um, kind of how the Memphis Bell, aside from the name, arrived in Memphis? The uh, airplane came through Memphis in 1943 on the Bond tour. The mayor at that time, even at that time, approached the War Department and wanted the uh, War Department to release the airplane to the city of Memphis so it could be set up as a display. Well, they tersely came back and said, there's a war on. We still need that airplane. No, you can't have it. Then, after the war, the airplane ended up at the uh, Reconstruction Finance Corporation field, which was Alta's Army Air Base. And in 1946, a reporter for the local newspaper happened to be out there, and someone called his attention to the fact that the Memphis Bell was sitting, pulled away from all the other aircraft and sitting out next to a famous B-24. The word went back to the mayor, the same mayor, and one thing led to another. We ended up buying it uh, for a fraction of what it cost the government to produce it in 1942. So, Yeah, what uh, was that figure? The airplane, the data card shows that the cost was $315,000. 
the uh, city of Memphis acquired it for $350. At that time, it was still in flyable condition, correct? It was flown back. A yeah. crew was assembled, and, and it flew it from Altus to Memphis. Wow. 350 bucks for a flyable B-17. Yep. And the Memphis Bell at that. I mean, that's... There wasn't much fuel left in it, though, so we, didn't, we, didn't, we couldn't recoup our investment on that. Uh, come on, you always get a free tank of gas with, the, uh, with every purchase, with your right? Purchase, right? Yeah. They used it up. <laughs> um, so what sort of happened next once it arrived in Memphis? Well, there's two phases. It's that first phase. Uh, the airplane was kind of tossed from the um, uh, 4th Ferrying uh, Command, which had a base there during the war and for a year or two afterwards. And then the Tennessee Air National Guard was formed, so it kind of came under their purview. Meanwhile, there were ongoing uh, grandiose plans for displaying it. Uh, even at, during that time, the Smithsonian actually uh, uh, put a, a plug in for it. They wanted to get it. And by the way, they were already actively gathering aircraft. As you know, Paul Garber was real active with Smithsonian getting all the airplanes out of Orchard, uh, Chicago, and other aircraft. That's why we have a lot of them saved. Um, so there were a number of plans going on, but nothing ever really happened. Um, by early 19... Oh, in 1950, the airplane had been given over to the uh, care of the American Legion, post number one. And they went ahead and uh, created a concrete pedestal, put the airplane up on that, put a fence around it to display it. And that's where many people in Memphis remember it. It was sitting at the, Air, the uh, Army National Guard Armory. And um, uh, many people saw it, kind of were upset over the condition that it was falling into. Uh, the, um, in 1977, the... Army National Guard had to move from its site uh, at what was the fairgrounds and the Liberty Stadium. And they um, had to move, so the bell had to move. Tennessee Air National Guard came to the rescue again and took it apart, took it over to the Air Guard base and, there, and stored it there, put it together. And that's uh, where it stayed. And uh, kind of not being well taken care of, uh, at the time, Royal Fry was the uh, director of the Air Force Museum, as it was known, and he came to the city and said, I know you own it, but we want it uh, because you're not taking care of it. What came of that was uh, in 1976, the Memphis Bell Memorial Association was chartered as a nonprofit corporation with the sole purpose of preserving and educating about the Memphis Bell. The mayor and the, the director or the commander of the American Legion Post got together and answered Mr. Fry's uh, request by saying, okay, we'll turn it over to the Air Force Museum. By then, there was a lot of interest in the airplane, and they decided that the best way to protect it was to give it to the Air Force. But, and that was done but the understanding that the airplane would stay in Memphis under the care of the Memphis Bell Memorial Association. So you went from 1946 to 1976. It basically belonged to the city and the American Legion. Uh, and then in 1976, uh, the uh, MBMA got their charter. I joined in 1977. 
and then it came under the care of the uh, association. And over the years, we uh, did uh, maintenance work on it, uh, preservation and what. It was uh, taken care of it for a part of the time by the Memphis Area Vocational Technical School. The students there as part of their uh, um, curriculum made parts for the airplane, strip corrosion and what have you. Uh, later on, uh, w efforts were being made to house the airplane at the airport uh, under one of our benefactors and uh, board members. The city of Memphis at the time was downtown, was in a state of decay, and the city fathers were looking for a means of getting more interest uh, for uh, tourism in the city, and they looked on the Bell as a natural uh, tourist attraction. I just want to pause it right there for a second, and um, Chris, you've been involved a lot in in air museums uh, throughout your career, and um, and and a lot a lot of World War II history. How does uh, Memphis's saving of the Bell kind of fit into that early preservation efforts, where we started to recognize? historically significant um, aircraft and material coming out of the war effort and the, the need to preserve that? I, I, I mean, in my opinion, the Memphis Bell is a rare uh, case where the airplane was immediately pulled out after the war. Uh, a lot of the aircraft we have flying today or in museums had other careers, and that's how they survived. You know, aluminum overcast uh, hauled meat and it hauled oil. It was a fire ant sprayer uh, and and. and it, you know, that's how a lot of the World War II warbirds managed to earn their keep and survive until the point where it was noticed that, oh, this is a historic airframe. Let's restore it back to how it should look in World War II. Sometimes the fighters were at Reno or air racing, things like that. Where the Memphis Bell, in uh, very few airplanes of that nature, like Flakbait, uh, Swoose, Enola Gay, things like that, uh, were immediately recognized, and thank God they were, uh, set aside by, by people that were looking way futuristic down the road people like frank donofrio and, and mayor chandler that said this, this airplane needed saved um so it, it's certainly a, a rare uh I, I shouldn't say a rare but it's a special tier where it wasn't that didn't happen as much you know it'd be different if memphis bell had become a a fire bomber and then had come back and been restored which is the route that a lot of the warbirds we have today went where they they found other ways to survive well and basically what you're saying is that the more desirable airframes were the ones that hadn't been used much so in in many cases those were not combat veterans right i mean a lot of them i mean a lot of the warbirds we have today actually were produced at the end too late for the war right for example most of the b-17s we have flying are the very late run g models with the cheyenne tails and things like that um and weren't even built by Boeing. Right, yeah, exactly. Douglas. Yeah, ours is a Lockheed Yeah, right? ours is a Lockheed Vega, yeah. I mean, so uh, I would put – I mean, if I'm wrong, let me know, Harry, but I would put Memphis Bell in that tier with a Nola Gay flak bait that – I mean, it was definitely one of those aircraft that people said, this is important to save. Thank God they did, that that group did. If I may interject, uh, somewhere along the line, uh, one of the directors of the National Air and Space Museum listed five significant aircraft in U.S. history. Enola Gay, the Wright Flyer, Lindbergh's Airplane, the X-1, and the Memphis Bell. That's awesome. I, I completely agree. <laughs> yeah, I, I think you know, there, the sacrifices of the men in, um, you know, over the skies of Western Europe is not, still not fully appreciated. I mean, uh, in the statistic that we lost more people there than the entire Marine Corps in the Pacific. Right. right. 
is uh, something that's not not always well understood, and and uh, the Memphis Bell is a, a huge symbol of that. It, it, I you know I I agree with what the Air Force Museum display says as you walk in. It's an American icon, mm-hmm. uh, and it and it truly is. Uh, I don't think anybody can look at a B-17 and at some point in your brain not connect that to the Memphis Bell, whether it's a G or a D or whatever. At some point you think B-17, at least maybe I'm biased, but uh, you, your mind goes to Memphis Bell. Sure. So, yeah. So, Dr. Friedman, we're, um, the, the, the Bell is, uh, is, is on its concrete plinth uh, mm-hmm. outside and uh, in, in, um, in, in pretty, uh, pretty poor condition at this point. Um, so uh, at this point, the Memphis Bell Memorial Association steps in, and why don't you take it from there? Right. And so uh, the uh, association, the main job was to try to come up with a display mechanism. For many years, it ended up staying out at the Air Guard, except when it went across the field to the vocational technical school. In the early mid-80s, a fundraising effort was created to install the airplane, as I indicated a while ago, as a tourist attraction down on Mud Island, which is actually a peninsula on the doorstep of downtown Memphis, which uh, is uh, the western edge of it is the Mississippi River. And so a group of businessmen from downtown got together, formed a committee, fundraising, and basically, uh, say, took over the project. Uh, We had some plans going on where it would be installed and memorialized in a museum out at the airport um, at the time, but uh, the mayor came in. Another mayor came in who expressed an interest in the bell for different reasons, Uh, and so the fundraising effort took off. And it culminated in the dedication in 1986 uh, in a pavilion that was built on the island. It was celebrated by a flyover of seven B-17s. Including Overcast, correct? Say again? Were, were we flying Overcast at the time? Yeah, yeah. Bill Harrison, okay. I think, had yeah. it. Yeah, Illumin Overcast was uh, flying. Yeah, Harrison was yeah. Uh, piloting. Yeah. And so it was Now, as soon as... We looked around, and we kind of knew from the beginning that could not be the permanent location. I mean, being right on the edge of the river, um, as it was proven later on, the river, the creek rose, (laughs) (laughs) and the water came over the banks and was about to go into the pavilion, and finally it receded. There were even plans uh, by the Air Force Museum to um, uh, heavy lift it out. Um, That was squelched for a variety of reasons. But at any rate, once we got it in, we already knew that uh, this was not going to be a lifetime uh, fixture. The uh, Air Force Museum sent down officials uh, in the uh, early uh, 2000s. General Metcalf came down with their restoration folks, looked at the airplane, said, "This is basically, this is what you got to do if you're going to keep it. And uh, we were already doing some work on it. Uh, but this then culminated in, and by that time, the Naval Air Station north of Memphis, the air side had closed down, and the city of Millington took over the airfield. Uh, Navy kept the south side. We worked out an arrangement with the city to take over one of the hangars, which had been one of the uh, uh, intermediate repair facilities at the Naval Air Station. Long story short, we moved the airplane out to Millington and began a restoration in earnest. We had, at one time, a crew of 40 
certified airframe and power plant uh, specialist mechanics who actually worked for FedEx. Uh, and they volunteered to work on the airplane. So they basically started doing major structural repair and the like. And so the airplane was uh, moving along. When we did our market research to determine whether or not building a museum would be feasible, and by the way, the county had already given us a piece of land to build a museum on. Um, when we did our market research and consulted with some of our former board members, uh, it was felt that the money, the support in the city of Memphis was not there like it had been in 1986 when we unveiled it on the island. And so after several meetings back and forth with congressional and senatorial uh, representatives and with the Air Force officials, we finally decided that it should go up there. So we basically told them to come get it. It wasn't that the Air Force came and took it away. We knew they wanted it, uh, but we finally surrendered and said, you know, for long-term preservation, it needs to be at the Air Force Museum. Chris, you were volunteering at the Air Force Museum when that was happening, right? I was there. I was there the day it came in. Yeah, it was, uh, it was actually the first time I ever saw it in person uh, was uh, the day that they brought it in uh, on, a, on a trailer uh, into the restoration shops over there. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, it was, pretty, uh, it was pretty special. They set up a special time where volunteers were able to come over and see it. And uh, uh, thanks to um, uh, uh, Rick uh, uh, Harris, uh, I got a chance to... Um, go in with him and, and see it over at the museum and uh it was i mean i got chills the first time i saw it i was starstruck i mean i got no kidding i mean i read about this thing watched all the movies and now i'm finally getting to see the real airplane we still are starstruck yeah yeah exactly um so yeah and it was amazing to watch the restoration go on you know i i, I didn't volunteer there anymore later on because i'd moved away but as the restoration was going on i would go down there with mark uh, wartimer and Roger and, and and get a chance to go in and check it out. Uh, I think you went with us on one of those trips, didn't you? Yeah, um, yeah. I was going to say that. Um, uh, yeah, a couple about seven years ago at this point. Yeah, yeah we went down yeah. there, and I, I was just blown away by the philosophy that the museum had. As essentially, we we're going to produce a zero-timed B seventeen. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know that if anybody ever wants the archival value of seeing what a B seventeen looked like in the wartime setup, they'd be yeah. able to take a look at this airframe. So they basically indicated just that, what you just said, that this was going to be the airplane of record, the B-17 of record, yeah. and uh, which led to some uh, interesting discussions and controversy, not controversy, but uh, spirited discussions <laughs> about at what level did we want to restore the airplane? Was it when it came out of the factory or was it after its 25th mission? And um, as it ended up, uh, it was kind of a combination of both. It was mostly marked up as it, uh, the 25th, after the 25th mission. Um, but there are some um, uh, privileges taken with uh, the internal arrangement of certain things that were more factory-oriented, not what it was later on. And Chris, you, you told me an interesting story about the uh, the the color of the uh, of the Bombay paint. Do you want to go over oh, that real yeah. quick? Oh yeah, there was a heated discussion between me and Max over what we were seeing and some of the the first picture that came out that was. Uh, Max uh, is a former roommate of Chris and mine, and yes. a very avid model builder who tries to get everything absolutely correct. Yes, and and, and always and and just you know, he uh, he's. He likes to be right. <laughs> he's, I hope he listens to this. And uh, so uh, we were looking at pictures of painting the Bombay. 
and both both of us had always thought the interior of Bombay would be just bare metal, you know. And then it, they painted it gray. And then what was amazing was in the comments section uh, on the post, they actually had pictures backing up that here it was before it was untouched. You know, it was still untouched from the war. It was painted gray. Uh, just things like that, like details that basically I think are going to drive model makers, you know, nuts for years uh, over colors of things that we always 100% thought it was this way. And this restoration uh, and the work that you guys have done prior to this restoration as well sort of proved wrong that it was the opposite of the case. You know, uh, I remember the 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 just I think that probably somewhere in the in the cyber world it's still circling trying to figure out what the lights were underneath the tail guns on the back. There's that one sort of mod. Oh yeah. And I remember, oh my God, there was this you know debate that went on for weeks about what that was. Yeah, well, there were different mods of those lights, and they yeah. had different purposes. So. Uh, uh, it was kind of a combination of uh, the British way of signaling yeah. when they're in formation and uh, Americans. So. Yeah, I mean, we, I think we're still learning a lot from this restoration yeah. as well. If it, yeah. it, well, one of the things that was misleading for people, we took liberties with painting interior. Uh, much of the airplane uh, was not painted inside. Uh, frankly, they didn't expect them to be around long enough to need to be <laughs> painted and preserved. Uh, but we took a different tack. Memphis is high in humidity. Sure. So we decided to just coat the inside with zinc chromate, uh, whether it was – we knew it was illegal, <laughs> but we did it anyway <laughs> just to preserve the airplane, which turned out to be uh, – it, it got to be a little touchy at times because some of the original stencils and markings were still in the fuselage. And I had to go behind people when they were painting. I said, don't paint that over that. That's That's original. And sometimes I wasn't there fast enough, but uh, <laughs> but um, but a lot of the controversy was generated by us because of what we did to preserve it. And uh, but there were parts like in the cockpit, and those was that dark uh, green uh, was that was original. Wow. Well, and again, it goes back to the archival value of having an airplane that went straight into preservation rather than being a flyer like ours and a lot of the other B-17s out there mm-hmm. where. Um, whatever evidence that there is of the original wartime configuration still exists in, in, yeah. in a lot of cases. So, yeah. And the airplane oh, has its original turrets, right? I mean, it, that's got to yes. be the only B-17 to have its original gun turrets oh, on the I airplane. I didn't know that, actually. And yeah. not only that, when, when we had it, we restored the transmissions and the mechanisms, and so the top and bottom turrets were, you could operate them electrically from inside the turret. Wow. Um, so let's skip ahead a little bit here. So um, last May, uh, we all were in Memphis. Uh, uh, Chris was one of the presenters. Uh, uh, you opened actually for Catherine Weiler uh, one of the nights. Yeah, that's, uh, <laughs> that's an honor I never thought I'd be able to say I had. Yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, I wasn't there, but you you uh, both watched the curtain drop on the uh, on the on the restoration. What did that feel like um, to to finally see that happen? It took your breath away. I mean, there was a lot of gasping and. <laughs> You could hear the tears, and uh, then the applause. And then it was a dead silence, yeah. like after a great symphony. You can't, you know, you're just stunned by it. And then, you know, cheers and applause. I was uh, I was blown away. I mean, as it's my favorite airplane. Period. Um, and when the curtain dropped, the first image that went through my mind for some reason was it. It almost looked. I don't know if it was the lighting or just how well it looked but it almost reminded me of one of the old 
wartime production photos. I mean, it just mm-hmm. when that curtain dropped, I'm like, oh my god, it looks brand new. It's I mean, gleaming, and, and there yeah. she is. And we had discussions about that, <laughs> right? And it's yeah. just, but there was definitely a, there was definitely a, um, an emotion in that room that night. Uh, mm-hmm. You had family members of each one of the crew, uh, family members of Margaret Polk there. Um, that was just uh, a special night to be there. My wife got choked up. I mean, and, and she's not an airplane geek like we are. Mm-hmm. And uh, and she was just like this. You really felt you were seeing something special that night. Uh, and every time you go near the airplane, you get this sense that. Yeah, still. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. There's ghosts there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is an absolutely amazing uh, restoration. And, I mean, the, the amount of painstaking detail, I mean, some of the stuff seems su- superficial but you know just the fact that the bomb markings were hand painted mm-hmm. they took uh, photographs of the area where the nose art would be uh, placed and then went back and got some good relatively high resolution photographs of the original nose art and they even nailed them down this part is how many rivets away from here so they would get it exactly centered exactly the way it was on the airplane and that's how they did it and this was in-house artists who did this and they found out that one of the stars was crooked on the back of the fuselage and they made it crooked on the restoration made yeah. it on purpose because when yeah. joe jambroni painted it on there he painted it crooked <laughs> back in uh, 1943 that's so, fantastic uh, yeah. pittsburgh boy by the way <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that's just amazing uh there's a, a funny story that came up last night about um uh stuka's uh I guess spiritual successor. You want to uh, just uh, mention that briefly? <laughs> to me, this is one of the highlights of the whole week. <laughs> I'm a dog lover. What can I say? And and Stuka sort of represents mom and apple pie, you know, when, with the airplane being in combat. Here, are periodic pictures of the dog would oh. show up on a B-17. Yeah, he wasn't even type rated. <laughs> it was a little, little black uh, Yorkie, right? It was a um, Scottish. Uh, Scottish, excuse me. Yeah. yeah. And uh, one day, uh, near the end of the restaurant, not long before the dedication, somebody came into the museum with a little Scotty dog who was a spitting image of uh, Stuka. At the same time, we were going through, frame by frame, the outtakes from the Weiler movie. Um, And there was a split second, maybe two frames, showing Stuka under the airplane with a uniform on. <laughs> and the, the resolution was good enough that the, the fellows in restoration were able to basically recreate that uniform with, together with the sergeant stripes. <laughs> and they contacted the owner of, of that, that Scotty dog, and they loaned him to the museum for the week, and they dressed him up in that recreated uniform. <laughs> he was one of the highlights of the whole week. And uh, one of the pictures I cherish was uh, taken with him and Roger Deere. <laughs> <laughs> it was great to see, like, you'd, you'd go to an event, and you'd see some reenactors walking around, and there's Stuka. There, Stuka's yeah. a rean- an official reenactor. <laughs> yeah. Hey, fantastic. you know, we've got, we've got human reenactors of uh, the yeah. vets. We might as well have, uh, have a Stuka reenactor, too. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so uh, as, as, we, as we start to wrap up here, Dr. Friedman, I'd like to touch briefly on uh, the work that you've done uh, organizing the B-17s that fly, too, and, and keeping them maintainable. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about the, the B-17 uh, co-op and the work we've done there? Yeah, the B-17 co-op is a, uh, I call it a travel club. It's a loose organization of people who own and crew chief on the flying B-17s. 
off and on we've had static uh, aircraft represented. Uh, my ticket to the co-op was because I had the Memphis Bell. And they actually came to us, one of their representatives, back in 85 when they heard that we were going to have a fly-in they wanted us to be a part of the co-op. So I went to their first meeting and ended up staying with the co-op. Uh, uh, being the non-flyer, I was sort of the referee of some of the discussions. I didn't have a dog in the fight, so. <laughs> and that uh, made for some interesting meetings. So basically the co-op is a group of people who represent primarily the flying B-17s. We get together once a year to discuss operational issues, parts issues, acquisition of tires. Also, and this is where EAA comes in, is uh, some of the issues we have uh, with governmental um, regulations and the like. And uh, EAA has represented us well. And so basically we just come together once a year to rehash what we've done over the year, what we need to be doing. And it just happens to be, it's fallen in my lap to organize those meetings. Uh, leaves the other guys free to fly. <laughs> <laughs> well, free to fly is it, it. That's an interesting topic because you know because we have these really great static restorations now, like the Memphis Bell, like Shushu Baby, uh, and a few of the other you know very very famous airframes, Boeing B out in Seattle, things like that. Um, that really does kind of free up the flyers to do the mission that they do. Right. Because um, you know you can't have a perfect restoration as it was in the 40s and fly it on a practical basis right, in 2019. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, Chris, you know, we've been coworkers and friends for years now. Yeah. And, uh, and I've watched um, the, the work that you've done uh, with our B-17 and, the, uh, and, and the, the veterans that we've brought on, um, you know, on our media flights. Do, do you want to just very briefly talk about how that program came about and, and your involvement with that? Yeah, I mean, uh, our airplane, aluminum overcast, is a Lockheed Vega-built G model. Um, Dr. Bill Harrison uh, uh, basically made it possible for us to have the airplane. He donated to us. Uh, went through restoration and, and got it as close to uh, G standards as we could and still be able to have people move around in the airplane uh, comfortably somewhat. Um, and I came on board in 2013. And I was working in our membership department, and uh, because I love the B-17, I was given uh, uh, the, uh, the, the job of, of booking flights on the B-17. And our flight of manif or our order form, basically, asks you what makes you want to buy a ride. Um, you know, it's not a, it's not a cheap flight, um, and uh, so there has to be some vested interest in, in going up. And um, people were writing these really cool notes about, you know, my dad uh, was a B-17 navigator, and I want to go sit where he sat. Uh, some of them were, you know, we want to take Grandpa up one more time in the type of airplane he flew. Um, and I asked if there was anybody reaching out back to these people, and we didn't really currently have that. And um, I asked if I could, and I just simply would start emailing people back. And they would uh, sometimes, you know, I said, do you know your loved one's name? You know, do you know Grandpa's name? And, uh, you know, um, anything, any info about what airplane he flew on or what bomb group, a lot of them, you know, would know a name and knew he was on B-17s, and that's it. Um, and he's no longer with us, but they wanted to go fly in the type of airplane he flew in. And with just a little research, these bomb group associations are a wealth of knowledge, and, and they make researching a lot of this stuff pretty easy. Um so I would find a photo of the crew with them in it 
and send them a, their their confirmation of your your book to fly on the 10 o'clock flight in Ukiah, California on Saturday. Um, and by the way, here's a picture of your grandpa and his crew with their B-17. And a lot of times it was a photo that these family members had never seen. They had never seen their grandpa during World War II. Um, yeah, and Chris, you are an absolute wizard at that. I will, um, I'll have like family friends who say, oh yeah, my uh, uncle, uh, you know, was, was a World War II pilot. And within five minutes, I've got a picture of his airplane uh, <laughs> sitting in my, in my inbox. Well, it, thanks to play, I mean, really thanks to the, the, the associations that do and maintain their archives, uh, it's making that kind of research you know, possible. Um, and um, the culmination of my work on the B-17 uh, one of my my proudest endeavors I'll ever uh, have is uh, is putting the veterans back on the airplane, and um, you know thanks to the trust of Sean and Christy and, and the folks over at Weeks, um, I would help with the media flights, and that would allow me to find World War II vets who uh, hadn't been in a B-17 in many years, and get them a chance to go fly again, and um, it's some of them you know uh, many of them were crew members. But sometimes we would even touch the lives of the family members of, you know, the wives who were here. Maybe their loved one isn't. And it was uh, and I know Sean has a story similar where we had a, a young gal uh, fly uh, who never met her dad. And her dad was a top turret gunner and she flew on overcast over where the top turret was. And, you know, she said this was the closest I, I've ever felt to my dad was was in this airplane uh, over in the station that he would have been in. Um, I'll briefly just wrap up my little part with saying that uh, um, there's no higher honor that I think I can have than uh, having been a, a part in returning a, uh, a lost crew member uh, that was missing in action for over 70 years, uh, not only back to the United States, but, um, but back in, in a proper burial at Arlington uh, Cemetery last May. So uh, um, I'm extremely fortunate to, to get to be around this aircraft. Yeah, absolutely, Chris. I, I, when I was in membership um, not long before you got there, and uh, the, you know, I, I'm embarrassed to say I never, I, I never, uh, you, you had a you had a really great idea. Um, I'm embarrassed to say I never thought of it myself, but uh, you know, the, the the party line had always been, um, you know, when a when a veteran would call in and or, or a family member would call in and say, hey, you know, I've got a, a family member who's a veteran, can't pay for the flight. You know, is there any way we could work this out? It's like, geez, you know, the the bomber's very tough to operate and you know we have to sell every seat uh, but you had the idea of working with the flight department to provide the context on those media flights uh, to um, uh, you know to put put those veterans on the media flights so that now the media has somebody to talk to right. and some context for those for those flights and that's uh, that, that was hugely important well, it was a, an honor to be part of it we observed the same phenomenon when we had the Memphis Bell um, uh, on Mud Island uh, during the short, its time there it was not uncommon to have veterans show up with their family in tow. And the way that it was situated it was kind of a platform in front of and above the airplane. So one standing up on the platform is actually looking straight at or maybe down on the airplane. It was not uncommon for someone to be kind of looking off in the air, nowhere in particular, and start talking about his experiences being on that kind of airplane. Yeah. And, and the children would look at them and say, how come we haven't heard this? Yep. Yep. I mean, we hear it everywhere you go. The fellows just didn't talk about it. And one of the things you've done, Chris, is by bringing these people out, 
people hear about it, the word spreads, families start asking questions, and we start discovering these veterans. Fortunately, I mean, you know, we're losing them every day, but uh, I think through your efforts, we've been able to capture their memories and a lot of the stories that go with it. Absolutely. Um, and Chris has a very uh, great um, presentation that he's given on the uh, on the, the veterans that uh, that we've flown on the airplane. Uh, that was that was what you uh, you presented at the uh, at the unveiling of the Memphis Bell. And uh, I believe if you go to uh, uh, our webinars uh, website, you'll be able to uh, to find uh, Chris's uh, presentation archive there. Highly recommend you all see it. Uh, it is, it will send chills down your spine. It is it is really great. Well, thank you. Kind words. I appreciate it. <laughs> You deserve it. <laughs> <laughs> well, with that, um, Dr. Friedman and uh, and of course Chris, as always, uh, uh, it's been uh, it's been another great episode of the Green Dot. Uh, to all of you listening, uh, please keep your reviews coming. Uh, positive reviews uh, can come to me. Negative reviews can go to Chris. Oh, fantastic! Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, and we'll catch you next time when you're cleared to land on the Green Dot. <laughs> <laughs>